Well, good evening to this episode of In Our Time about Philip II of Macedon. I'd like to introduce our guest experts this evening. We've got Matthew Cook, who's got a PhD in Ancient History from the University of Oxford, specialising in Philip II. Robin Whitgriff, a Professor of Ancient History and Classical Archaeology at the University of Warwick. And Sophie Fiddeman, a Professor of Ancient History at the University of Exeter. Welcome all. If I could come to you, Sophie, first, could you give us a brief biography, a brief overview of Philip II's background, please? Uh, yeah, Philip II was born in 382 BC and was the 18th King of Macedonia with his reign lasting from 359 BC until 336 BC when he was assassinated. He was the son of Macedonia's king Amyntas III and his wife Eurydice I. During his reign, Philip II had a number of great military and political achievements which resulted in the, fast, the vast expansion of the empire's territory. Some of his victories include the Battle of Chaeronea in circa 338 BC, where he fought against Greek city-states, and his resolving of a dispute known as the Third Sacred War that lasted from 355 to 346 BC. Also, in the 350s BC, just after the beginning of his reign, Philip II had already started expanding their territory, which included besieging and capturing Amphipolis in 357 BC and taking control of Greek city-states along the coast of Macedonia. By 339 BC, he had gained domination throughout Greece via diplomatic and military means. So he was obviously a very successful ruler. Um, Sophie, can I ask you again to um, tell us about his early life and experiences, his family and his relationships? Uh, yeah. Philip II had two older brothers, Alexander II and Perdiccas III, who both unsuccessfully reigned for a few years each before his reign. Um, during his life, Philip II married around seven times, the fourth of which includes Olympias, the mother of Alexander the Great, who succeeded his father in 336 BC. Olympias was the daughter of the king of the Molossians, which meant that Alexander was not a true Macedonian. Um, Philip II's seventh and final wife was called Cleopatra, the daughter of Hippostratus, an Indo-Greek king. This meant that any child she birthed would be of proper Macedonian origin, and so when she had two, a boy and a girl, this threatened Alexander's inheritance of the throne and made Olympias jealous. As a result, after Philip II's assassination, Olympias murdered both of the children that Cleopatra and Philip had produced which led to Cleopatra taking her own life and ensured that Alexander was still in line for the throne. Um, in 368 BC, one of his brothers, um, who had just taken the throne, decided to ally himself with Thebes, which at the time was one of the most influential and powerful Greek city-states. As a result, Philip was taken hostage in Illyria and then held in Thebes for about three years, where he received excellent military and diplomatic training from both Theban general strategies and statesman called Epaninodos um, until 365 BC. This Greek training was very important because it influenced Philip II and he used it with the Macedonian army, which increased the range of their military skills. Okay, thank you very much. So his mother particularly sounds quite uh, special. Um, now, the succession. Could I come to Robin now? Um, how did Philip come to power? Well, he was. He initially wasn't actually in line for the throne when Perdiccas III, Philip's older brother, died in a campaign against the Illyrians. Uh, uh, Philip was initially supposed to be regent for his infant nephew, son of Perdiccas, Imintas IV, 
and Philip succeeded in taking the throne for himself in 359 BC. He immediately set to work improving the state of the country with the aim of uh, becoming ruler of Greece and hopefully at some point liberating the Greeks under Persian rule. And when you say becoming ruler of Greece, you mean all of Greece, not just Macedonia? Yeah, all of the Greeks. Okay. Um, Sophie's mentioned something about the um, Theban influence on the military reforms in Macedonia. Can you tell us more about these military reforms and how significant they were? Well, they were, they were quite extensive reforms and they were essentially what allowed Macedon to become so powerful. Uh, before Philip's reign, the country had no reliable infantry and it had... It had decent cavalry, I suppose, but it was by no means elite. But uh, by the end of Philip's reign, the army, uh, in both in terms of infantry and cavalry, was the best in the world. Mm -hmm. um, he introduced the companion cavalry, the Hetairoi, I think, in Greek. Uh, most Western armies and even Eastern armies had a pretty narrow conception of the use of cavalry at the time. Uh, whereas the Companions were the world's first shock cavalry, which hadn't been done before because it was quite unintuitive. Stirrups hadn't been invented, so charging someone would throw the rider off the horse. I see, yeah. Um, but they had light, thin, double-ended spears, which were so thin that the spears wobbled as they charged, which were not used like lances, but rather they were used for quick stabs. And they were trained in charging in a wedge rather than a line, which was difficult to get right, but made their manoeuvres a lot more coordinated. Um, he also introduced the foot companions around the same time, the Pez Hatairoi, I think. Uh, they used very long pikes rather than the traditional one-handed spears of the hoplites, and were the first soldiers in the world to be drilled in manoeuvres. Um, they Pikes called sarissas could be 14 to 20 feet long, which is over twice as long as the spears of the other Greeks. And they were so long that four men four or even five ranks back could still fight the enemy, essentially meaning they had double or triple the amount of weapons in use with no extra manpower. Mm. Um, this meant they had to use smaller shields, which meant they were vulnerable to ranged attacks, and like all phalanxes, they were slow to move which was fixed by the uh, the third new unit, the shield bearers or hypaspists, which were outfitted in a more traditional Greek style. They basically were designed for the more unorthodox tactics, like fighting on uneven ground, breaching walls and scaling cliffs. And their looser formation and more wieldy weapons allowed them to be Sort of more fluid and they could do things like chase down running enemies. Um, all of these combined into Philip's most successful tactic they used to win many times called the hammer and anvil where the infantry which he'd spent a large amount of money and time perfecting would hold the enemy in place whereas the uh, by this point the best cavalry in the world swung around to the enemy's rear which meant the enemy either had to go through the best cavalry in the world or the unbreakable meat grinder of the phalanx, which basically meant nine times out of ten they were defeated. And uh, he did use some foreign mercenaries, but he made sure he only used the best of the best. 
I see. Okay, so brilliant um, military innovations, um, and that, I presume, led to military victories. So what were his military achievements? Well, he got involved in many battles, the most famous being the Battle of Chironea, where Philip defeated anti-Macedonian alliance, and it was also uh, where Alexander, who would succeed him, distinguished himself in a cavalry charge. Um, the battle was won, and... Uh, Philip made an example of Corinth, who led the anti-Macedonian coalition um, and was extremely brutal towards them, but he was relatively kind towards Athens, which offered Philip and Alexander honorary citizenship. Um, but in just to sum his military achievements up, Macedon was a small backwater state in the start of Philip's reign, and by the end it owned pretty much all Greek land except the ones in Asia and Sparta. I see. Impressive. Um, it's interesting that he was so kind to Athens, isn't it? He obviously liked the Athenians, admired the Athenians. Um, so was he just a good soldier or um, did he have any other strings to his bow, Robin? Well, he, uh, he did have some diplomatic achievements called the... Uh, the main one being the League of Corinth, or Hellenic League, um, which is kind of similar to the old Peloponnesian League or the Elian League uh, back in way before this time period. Um, Macedon was not actually a member of the League, but uh, it made each member of the League separately ally with Macedon. And in short, the League allowed Greece to manage its own affairs, but it provided an army to Macedon, essentially making it a vassal state of Macedon. Yeah. And all Greek cities except Sparta joined the League, and uh, Philip himself, and later his heir Alexander, was declared hegemon, meaning he led the League's army. Um, one other notable diplomatic achievement was uh, Philip... It was when Philip was making his first expedition into Persia. Um, he was he successfully liberated some cities, but was unable to continue because the king of Epirus was basically about to declare war on him, and he offered his daughter's hand in marriage to make peace. And the killing uh, king of Epirus agreed, and coincidentally, it was at this marriage when Philip was killed. I see. So he he made some diplomatic. Uh, successful choices as well. Sounds like his marriages must have been part of that. Which brings me on to Matthew now. Um, Matthew, tell us, um, he's got this uh, enormous territory um, and it sounds like it wasn't easy to manage from the outset. So why was that? What problems did he have controlling all this territory? Well, initially when coming to territory, he's well off the bat facing a number of issues. So for example, you've got the Macedonian geography. So Throughout Macedonia, you've got nomadic peoples and they're providing some food. In the southeast, it's largely agricultural, so plenty of farmland. That means Philip does have a fair bit of control over his food supplies, which is his, one of his few advantages. In the north, he's got lots of mountainous regions, so that means he's quite minimal wealthy, but it's, this area is largely controlled by aristocrats. So one of the issues he has to solve is how is he going to control these people. So what he does is he brings a lot of citizens from that area into his infantry and his army. 
And plus, uh, the aristocrats already have their power weakened. They can't really stage a revolt if they don't actually have enough people to help them do it. Mm-hmm. So in addition to this, to subjugate the nobility, he introduces Hellenization, or basically he's trying to get them to adopt Greek culture. And this also is an attempt to improve relations with the Greeks, who currently at this point view Macedonians as barbarians. So, uh, so for example, another way, I think he also does see... Uh, acts as a patron towards Greek intellectuals, so for example Aristotle. And these relations are also affected due to factors such as religion, but anyway, so once he has control of this northern region, he's he's got access to these new resources, which means he can hire now hire mercenaries, and he uses these to protect towns and cities, because one of the problems faced by military is that hired mercenaries such as well, Romans did it for once, for example, is they sometimes get bought off by the enemy commander. Mm-hmm. So what Philip does, he puts them into towns and cities while using his own more loyal in- infantry and cavalry to actually go on any offensives. So that way he's able to have high-quality troops protecting him while BS will be able to bring his own Macedonian troops to battle. So the reason he needs to do all this because he's largely surrounded on all sides. He's got Epirus to the west, but as already discussed, they, yeah, they had some diplomatic issues with them, so he's surrounded on all sides, so he also constructs a lot of military settlements in, in those mountainous regions, and he builds new roads to facilitate troop movements. Okay, um, so quite a lot of um, different innovations to control or this region, particularly the Macedonian region, which sounds in itself quite divided. Um now, how do we know all this stuff about Philip II of Macedon, Matthew? Well, we have a number of sources to help us. So one of the most prominent is Arian, from 86 AD to 160 AD. He's a Roman born in Turkey, um, enters the army, gets to the rank of legate. Uh, he becomes what's called a Stoic philosopher, so as well as being a historian and writer. And he, he has a large focus on military history. His primary focus is on Alexander, but he does discuss Philip a fair bit. So you're an, Downside is that he is non-contemporary, he's so he doesn't quite a, a, a long time after the time yeah, period, isn't he? Yeah, so he's well, so he's a Roman writer. Yeah. Uh-huh. So um, alternatively, we do one of our contemporary sources is uh, Theopompus, who's born in Ionia, which is sort of well modern-day Turkey on the coast of um, the Adriatic. Uh, he's a historian. And he he sympathises with Philip and Sparta as well, actually. Um, unfortunately, most of his work is lost. So. <laughs> So we're sort of relying yeah. on people who relied on Theopompus. Mm. Right, okay. So we do have one of the people who patrons to and actually hired as the tutor to Alexander. We have Aristotle so from 384 BC to 322 BC. Aristotle was quite unique because he's got expertise in a huge range of subjects. So whether it be biology, history, philosophy, politics, all sorts of stuff, he's mm. very knowledgeable. So this is probably why he uses Aristotle to educate Alexander. Um, so, fortunately, Aristotle is contemporary, but we don't particularly have too many of his writings on Philip himself. So. Right, he didn't actually write a biography. He's, much, he's more of a political theorist. Yes, yes. Uh, alternatively, as another non-contemporary source, we have Diodorus Siculus, and he's a Roman historian under Julius and Augustus from 90 BC to 30 BC, and he does a lot of travelling, but again, he has that non-contemporary problem where he doesn't have a first-hand account. Right, yeah. So similar to Arian. Yeah. Yeah. So alternatively, we do have inscriptions uh, throughout Persia and Greece, but of course they're largely going to be biased in 
well, Philip's favour as Alexander can use that as propaganda in halfway. I see, yeah. So, so really, our sources are pretty flawed, um, or not ideal. Um, I see, okay, so that's a problem you're all working with. Um, now, we've already heard that Philip was assassinated, so can you give us a bit more detail about the, the circumstances surrounding his death? So, he's at a wedding, as well with um, the King of Ephesus, as said. Um, one of his bodyguards is supposed to have killed him, a bodyguard named Porsanius. Um, he supposedly does this because um, Philip doesn't punish men who had supposedly sexually assaulted him. Um, but what's largely speculated is that Alexander and Olympia may have been involved, so committing patricide, of course, wasn't uncommon throughout the ancient world. Um, so, but it's debatable because arguably Alexander was supposedly did, he was supposedly weeping at the, at the funeral, but on the other hand, the funeral was conducted very quickly, so we're still largely unsure as to whether Alexander was involved in any way. Okay. Um, so it's widely believed that Philip intended, or we know, I think, from the sources that he intended to invade Persia and leave a sort of uh, Greek yeah, crusade. Yes, yeah, right. Um, but obviously, he didn't do that because he was assassinated. So, what does um, Alexander sort of benefit from from Philip's life? Well, Alexander gains this like very well developed military tactics, so they're very new, so methods against those new military tactics are untested, and he's able to effectively use them, because he's had one of the best use in the world, and his father's been able to successfully try these tactics. So, arguably, some people would su suggest that Alexander isn't quite the great one. They'd argue that his father deserves much more of the credit. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So, with Philip's early early death, the West comes to revere Alexander. As Alexander died quite young, artwork of him only really portrays him as being quite youthful. So, for example, some Romans have statues that follow the same design, so Pompey the Great, for example. Yeah. If Philip had survived longer, well, statues would perhaps show the person's more aged, so, had he not been assassinated. Yeah. Of course, the conquest of Persia itself might have turned out differently. differently if he hadn't, just through any random coincidence. In, even if it didn't, the rest would be more inclined to revere, to, um, revere the ideas of Philip and not necessarily Alexander. So, arguably, even the politics of ancient history affects, well, politics today, really. How, how is that? So, for example, <coughs> uh, the breakup of Yugoslavia led to a new nation, the Republic of Macedonia. Mm However, -hmm. Greece opposed this on the grounds that they had a northern region of the same name. It was only actually quite recently agreed for Macedonia to be renamed Northern Macedonia, while the Greeks removed and moved their opposition to Macedonia joining the European Union. I see. So that split between the um, Philip II's North yeah. and Southern Macedonia is still still in existence today. That's interesting. Um, still relevant today. Thank you very much, expert guests. Uh, uh, we'll be doing a programme on Alexander the Great next week. Um, please tune in.